0: Okay, I'm delighted to be joined in the Downtown Den by an old friend uh, of Downtown in Business, uh, a living legend as far as the city of Liverpool is concerned, and I'm sure recognisable to many across the nation because he's been involved in in lots of television shows as well, uh, and a friend to many stars. Pete Price, welcome to the Downtown Den,
1: sir. Thank you, sir. It's uh, a joy to be here. And ladies and gentlemen, for those who are watching you will notice that i've had a shave unlike him
0: <laughs> this is true i'm getting a little bit lazy this week i i mean uh, what i would say in my defense is I, i'm actually having a week off this week but i've made special dispensation because i was so keen to have a conversation with you and ah. get you uh, in front of our wonderful audience because i know that you've got such a fascinating story to tell but equally some important opinions i think in terms of the future of the media and where that's going so pete let's start off with talking about that career that you've had because it's been wide ranging. you've been involved in some great things i know you've had a wonderful life and a great time in the entertainment industry as i say give us a whirlwind, whirlwind tour of what that career has looked like
1: i was cooking uh, my mom told me many years ago to get a trade behind you. So I went to Cajun College because I love cooking and I did hairdressing uh, and I worked for Peter Collins. Uh, I was his apprentice and I actually finally left hairdressing because I thought I can't be doing with women nagging and complaining about their husbands and what do I finish up doing? A late night phone in with women complaining and nagging about their husbands. <laughs> but that. Went totally wrong. I was working in the cabin club as a chef. I went to sea. I worked at the Cafe Royal in London. I got all my uh, diplomas, the first time I'd passed anything in my life. I was working one night at the cabin. The band had had a problem. I said, Why don't you start a disco? And they said, What's a disco? And there was only one in the city. And I hadn't, hadn't a clue what it was. And I, in my chef's gear, with one turntable, put 10 records on and the rest is history. One of my favorite stories from that, and a million stories, was I was earning £15 a week as a chef, working 18 hours a day, flogging myself, running three restaurants in the cabin club. And they said to me, how much do you want to uh, be a DJ? And I went and told my mother, she broke her heart, saying, what? What what is it? We put records on. Oh, son, you can't do that for a living. So they said, how much do you want? And I thought, well, I can't ask for money. And they went, come on, how much? And I went, oh, they went, we'll give you 20 quid and no more. And I went, what? Because I was shocked because I was only 15 pounds. They went, what? They went 25, and that's the last offer. <laughs> and that's how it started. And then the, uh, a man called George Silver bought the Shakespeare Theatre Club over. A uh, fascinating man who was in one of the Bond films. Multi, multi-millionaire. Very big man. I think he was about 24 stone. Fascinating, interesting man. And he asked me to come and be the host and uh, bring down the audience because it was such a big room. So bring them together and be go around the tables, et cetera, et cetera, which I did. And the first night I got up on stage and sang two songs and, and told three gags and I was a star, a star was born. I was then booed and had tables and chairs thrown at me for about three years when I learned the trade. So that went there. And then I went on the road, leaving the road I nearly made it twice nearly became a star twice if that's the word that exists uh, and it never happened but that's another story and then I was offered radio I'd done radio merseyside and in fact I'd done radio merseyside I was the first ever freelancer on radio merseyside and I, uh, the show was called never mind the price and I got five guineas for that five pound five shillings for those young people listening now and then they doubled the price and called it twice the price but they didn't double the money so i had done that little bit of radio i was offered a job on city and i thought should i be a big fish in a little pond or a little pond a little fish in a big pond and i took the plunge and i actually took a financial dive because i was earning good money because in those days frank you could work three clubs a night you know you could do a treble it was huge the business. And there were some terrible places, but the money was there. And so I I just did that. Uh, and then that is where it started. Um, really, in a nutshell. And then the show grew and grew and grew. And I did different things and got moved around. And then the pranks and cranks came around. And then things like when James Bulger Uh, was killed a dreadful dreadful time uh, in the history of the world you know to have two young people do that Liverpool was central to the story and I became the voice of Liverpool and eventually became friends with Denise sadly I wish I'd never met her through those awful circumstances but I got involved I went on the marches to keep Venables and and Thompson in prison so things like that and then the boy of 12 who uh, was going to kill himself and i walked out the show to help him uh, so there's mo- so many stories anthony walker um j- j- oh j- just reese jones we were important in, in the police came in that night trying to find witnesses so it became a vehicle and i realized that and I w- i've never been a shock jock i've always wanted to be myself and have an opinion right or wrong the I'm, I'm my, my people I love or hate me um, and I find that's really important that is it in a nutshell 40 years and with the comedy 50 years so 50 years in the business mm.
0: uh, I think as I say Pete and we will get you back on to talk about your career in entertainment because you've met some incredible people in, in that career and of course uh, the other thing is you, you're a great raconteur as I know because I've had some great nights with you And it'd be lovely to hear those stories. But I just want to pick up on a thing that does concern me in terms of where the future of media is heading. And it's you've identified some very um, interesting, but obviously um, heartbreaking stories in many respects in terms of those cases that you've named there. But it does tend to, sorry, it does suggest that, you know, your program, though, Yes, entertainment also had that campaigning element in it, and again, I would suggest that local newspapers had the same reputation in the past. So, you know, the Liverpool Echo uh, used to run a uh, "Stop the Grot" campaigns, and you know, I, I just wonder, Pete, as we start to to morph into these national stations with national presenters. Where are we going to get those local and regional campaigns at a media level from, do you think?
1: Let me be totally honest with you on this, Frank, and I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm being incredibly honest over this. Now my show is finished. I will say one thing that really pained me. Yes, I had the listeners, but no, they didn't ring in like they used to. And we used to have complaints. Why is nobody ringing in? They're not ringing in because they can tap on a keyboard and send that answer on Twitter and Twitter and social media in my humble opinion has killed, killed phone and you hear the national station, I'm not going to mention any names but you hear the national stations, you count how many calls, you'll find very few. I remember at the end of a night talking about James Bulger, I'd have 200 people on a local radio station waiting to get on at two o'clock in the morning when i had phoebe a psychic on she actually blew the telephones she blew them up and it was a new system from london and they didn't understand what happened they came up from london to find out and they worked out on a local radio station when phoebe was alive and on my show nineteen thousand people tried to ring in in an hour now that's unheard of on a national radio station so being very truthful nobody was more upset than me i begged i did everything in the book to try and get people on the phone In they were listening they were twittering they were instagramming they were doing everything else but they couldn't be bothered picking a phone up why should i and we pay for the call we would have people wait saying i'm not waiting put me on now i'm not waiting So we're living in a different world. Maybe it will come back. I believe in America, it's starting to come back because there's millions of talk shows. Um, And also, I'm holding my telephone in my hand now, talking to you on Zoom. This animal in my hand is something that children listen to radio on, listen to podcasts on, do Zoom and everything. It's a different world and i tried desperately to move away with here is an example i would put on twitter while i'm talking to you i put on twitter i'm talking to frank what do you think ring now you know whatever the number was it was just but they never rang it was it was incredibly frustrating incredibly frustrating in terms of
0: where it goes from here pete because we're talking on the day that you know, the eve of the closing of City Talk, which, again, for those who are watching this from outside Liverpool, uh, is a station that was quite uh, innovative when it was set up, very unique, a local uh, talk station. Um, I I think it quickly moved away from being all talk to mixing it up a bit. But you had a programme, I think I'm right in saying, right from the off, didn't you?
1: I had a programme on the first ever City Talk because they've done it twice. And it didn't work the first time. And we had a great advantage the first time because um, this morning was going from Liverpool. We had every guest on in this morning, so we had this wealth of talent coming through the, the doors. And in those days, we didn't have social media the same, so we had to have a lot more staff to ring up and book calls, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and it, it was a different world then, but it didn't work. This was uh, a brainchild again to come back. And it would have worked completely, because Scousers love to talk, if it had a broader base of, of, of the amount of listeners. And let's face it, it's a business. You know about businesses. God, you run the most. An empire that talks about business all the time. It didn't make any money. And they've kept it going for an awful long time, an awful long time. And I've been expecting it to close for a long time, Frank. Uh,
0: And as that disappears, uh, and as I've mentioned, as regional newspapers, local newspapers also, uh, along with nationals, I have to say, but, but local and regional newspapers in particular, start to see readerships decline. I'll come back to that point I made, Peter. And this is where I'm concerned. Where do we find good local programs, good local journalists who are going to focus on those issues that matter to the Brummy, to the Scouser, to the Mank? Those things that may not be sexy for Sky or for Newsnight or for BBC National News, but are crucially important to the people in those localities. That's what concerns me, and I wonder where we're going with this, to be honest.
1: It's an interesting point. The other point about that, too, Frank, is that we're watered down with news. We're now 24-7. And because of that, a story like, and I keep, well, let's talk Anthony Walker, a story like that took the British press over, every phone in, but we're now immune to so much stuff. It's just like, it, 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 so I always used to say, something could happen outside of the Radio City Tower that was just, I wouldn't even describe how vile it was. And it wouldn't even make, make, make a call because we're, we're numb to it. I mean, you look at Facebook, you look at Twitter, you look at uh, these ones where they've got shocking things where animals are attacking animals and people are arguing. In, it, we're living in a different world. So I couldn't say anything that shocks people. The last time, this is bizarre, the last time I had a really big campaign, and this was ridiculous, and it was as simple as this Frank. I love telling the story. I was sitting in Terminal 5 in Heathrow Airport. Opposite me was a man complaining that a woman had taken both breasts out to feed uh, her child, but she had both out, child. All I put on Twitter was, A lady is breastfeeding, a man's complaining, is this right? That's all I put. I went away for a week, I came back. I had a written statement from the managing director of our radio company saying what I should say. I actually said nothing, I just asked a question. It exploded beyond belief. Now, that would have exploded on radio years ago. Now it was happening on Twitter and social media. Yeah
0: yeah and i suppose we will find ways won't we as things evolve we start to develop our own communication platforms uh, and listen you know for all i will decry and will continue to decry the lack of that regional and local news that we have available to us yep. um we ourselves are now setting up you know we've got youtube channels we're doing these interviews we will increasingly i guess Star commentaries that are a bit more up-to-date than we've been able to in the past so the days when you produced a bot and you had to wait 24 hours for that to go out as a small business like ours they've gone you can immediately get your message out but i yeah. think the problem in a sense Pete, and you've reflected on this yourself really is that there is that much noise out there that getting the breakthrough to things that might be really important, actually, is going to be more challenging in the future,
1: isn't it? It is indeed. And another point we've got to make is, and I'll give us an example on City Talk, and I know for a fact the BBC are the same, whether people believe it or not. Before we put a story out on City Talk, and you had a programme, so you know this is a fact, we did our research and we had to get it right in case we were sued, et cetera, et cetera. On Twitter and Facebook, anybody can put any pack of lies they want and you believe it. And then you get the president of the United States of America topping it all with his pack of lies. And he makes a nonsense of the whole thing. So the beautiful thing about BBC and local radio, we had to get it right. And you know, you had a a producer that, you know, sorry, Frank, we can't go down that road. You know, that could cost us money. Solicitors have said that. People don't realise that. And yet other people put it on Twitter, Facebook and everything. And it's lies. And it's awful.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so that fake news um could at some point kill the whole thing and then see a return, as we're seeing in the States at the moment, to a more traditional form of media and communication. The other thing that I worry about, Pete, is that, you know, again, you will know um, many reporters, journalists, very professional, very committed to the job. Uh, our local newspaper, the Liverpool Echoes, had some wonderful journalists through the years. Uh, and again, you know, in the past, you could talk to a journalist about a story that they'd be researching for weeks, sometimes for months, before they would go public with it, because they wanted to ensure that they had all the facts straight, they had the story that they were comfortable with having, and they wanted to literally uncover everything. Now, you know, if you think over the years, some of the scandals, and I won't mention each of them individually, but let's, let's mention one that's not particularly controversial now, I don't think, but MPs' expenses. You know, the time it took for the journalists involved in that story to put all of that information together again you write a weekly column for the liverpool echo you know some of the journalists there journalists from other local newspapers are saying to me frank i've got half an hour to turn this around they've all got the twitter platforms they've all got the social media accounts where is that investigative journalism going to come from in the future do you
1: think i don't know because there's no money Because it's all about money and bosses have to do that. I've heard, I can't quote which ones, but I've heard today six magazines are closing because well, they're saying because of the problems with the virus. I'm saying totally different now. People are gonna use the virus to get rid of an awful lot of what they call dead wood, whether it's magazines, whether it's radio stations, whether it's televisions, whether it's companies, whether it's pilots and staff on the planes this is the perfect time for them to have a complete wipeout and i think we've seen nothing yet frank mm-hmm.
0: uh, and in terms of your industry sector pete what do you think that's going to look like because again we are seeing a, an amalgamation now aren't we of lots of stations coming together particularly music stations so you've got greatest hits you've got Heart, you've got you know comp- these stations basically Broadcast nationwide uh, with people who used to present local stations. It is, the, is the sector now going to see uh, almost a revolution where people do start disappearing, unfortunately, from the sector?
1: I think we're going to see an awful lot of people disappearing. I also believe we're going to see an awful lot of buildings disappear. don't think the tower will go but uh, buildings will go in every company. I mean, for instance, let's talk about um, Capital. They've got Juice, uh, that building, beautiful building. Why should they work from there? Why should they be there when they can be in London with the presenters down there, press a button and split adverts go to every region? In the world of business, I think it's gonna be amazing And, and stretching that out how many people are working from home? Why go back to the office? So I think it's going to be different as well. Um, like Leanne Campbell's working from home. Scott's in the studio. Uh, that's the breakfast show on Radio City 96.7. So you've got so many things. And also magazines working from home. I'm doing my echo column uh, with somebody. Uh, I'm giving them dictation. And they're working from home putting a newspaper together. Wow. You know, why go back to building? So I think it's going to be a different world. I also think that young people want to make their own radio stations. Um, In demand is going to be opening soon. Uh, Lee Butler and Steve uh, uh, um, um, Laycock, uh, they're opening. So there's going to be lots of independent little stations, but they're all there also to make money, you know, and our company has survived. Bauer is one of the biggest in the world. It's fighting against some of the biggest companies in the world as well um, for a, a small market.
0: And so, in terms of how we view media in the future, um, I think that people will start to look more skeptically at their Twitter feeds and their Facebook platforms and that sort of thing. And as I say, this may, listen, it could take another 10 years. So I'm not suggesting that overnight, uh, these platforms are gonna lose all the credibility. Um, but I do see, particularly actually, you know, the number of people that my sort of generation, whose favorite platform for many years was Facebook, something I've never used, but, but many of my friends have, they've come off that altogether now. Yeah. Um, now, I think that's partly because of the fake news controversy. I think the other thing though, if they were honest, is that it's that immediacy that we expect almost now, isn't it? Of being able to read something and, oh yeah, I've got the story. So so the beauty of Twitter is it's 140 characters. You don't have to get into a big reading uh, situation because you just, oh, I've got the point, right, I can go away. Uh, And again, I think that lack of ability to actually pay attention and have patience for things to develop now is morphing into all our lives, isn't it? And entertainment, perhaps in particular, because even this relatively new phenomena of binge-watching a television series. So, you know, my kids will take a series, which back in our day, Pete, it would have taken us 10 or 12 weeks to watch. They're watching it in a couple of nights. They're having (laughs) all-nighters watching the telly. It is incredible, the change that we've experienced over the last few years, isn't it?
1: It is indeed. And um, it's, uh, it, it, as you mentioned, Telly, I've got to mention a pet thing with me. It, and this is completely off the subject, but about Telly. But this is going to be really interesting. I'm a Coronation Street fanatic. I've never missed an episode from day one, ever missed an episode. And I am very curious to find out with Coronation Street, EastEnders, Hollyoaks. Uh, Emmerdale, what they're going to do, and there's all sorts of been things suggested in the papers, what they're going to do about the lockdown and uh, what's happened. Will they swerve it or will they just relate to it? Because if it starts to go on lockdown in Coronation Street or any of the soaps, I will switch that button off so fast. So <laughs> they must be in a bit of a dilemma over this, Frank.
0: Yeah, Yeah, because the soaps do try and reflect what's happening, don't they? Yeah. Uh, And again, listen, I I know a lot of people will be watching this. There are soap operas. I never bother with them. But again, the number of things that soaps have tackled over the years, you know, very serious social issues that often have been not talked about uh, in the media, but soap operas have have
1: tackled them head on. I'm so glad you said that because we'll go straight back to my radio show. I lived off the soaps for many years and you just said it, and people can poo-poo all they want, uh, or as they call them these days, ongoing dramas, but people can poo it all once. The research that goes into those storylines, and I'll point point out one now from Brookside. Stevie Pinder, Max Farnham, when his baby was born and was Down syndrome, we got call after call, night after night, dealing with Down syndrome and how they... They, they dealt with it on television and how they made a the point that one of the parents didn't want to know, and one did. And so they should never poo-poo, never poo-poo. So soaps uh, really go to that. And they never always get it right as, as far as the storylines go, but they certainly get it right 99% of the times when they do the research they're dealing with an issue now on coronation streets of racism they're dealing with an issue of uh, domestic mental violence and it's dreadful it's it's the hardest thing to watch but it's helping people and right now i mean whoever planned it they never in a trillion years would be thinking it would be shown in lockdown when the figures for domestic violence have gone up so, so I would never poo-poo, never. And I used to say to Phil Redmond, I used to ring him regularly and say, you're not going to believe this was said. And he loved getting the feedback, you know, as do the press office uh, in Coronation Street.
0: Yeah. Now, I think that's a really good point, Peter. And I, and I, I tell you now, uh, having worked with some senior politicians or have been around senior politicians, uh, one of the things that the good ones, the really good ones, make sure they are up to date with is soap operas uh, because they know that, you know, you've got to be able to talk about football and you've got to be able to talk about what's happening in Corrie. And if you get those two things right, you'll go a long (laughs) way in politics, I can tell you. I mean, listen, I think it was Tony Blair who raised a question about Deirdre Barlow in Parliament. He did indeed. But you know, that shows you the power uh, of those programmes. And of course, go on mate.
1: Just interrupting you. I was outside the prison with placards trying to get her out. The same day that Tony Blair actually got involved.
0: <laughs> and there you go. And of course, what they did was took it into another area of uh, of the law at the time. But yeah, very very powerful platforms, uh, and uh, I, I don't see that ending anytime soon. Uh, although again, viewer figures will tell you. That soap operas are probably a big concern for the future, but still an awful lot of loyal fans like you watching.
1: Well, I'll just say one thing: take soap operas, all of them off telly, and you tell me what's left. Yeah, not yeah. much.
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that's where the stream and the Netflix and and those sort of uh, media platforms are starting to to eat into to the business in a sense. Yeah, Peter, listen, I, I want to because listen, you you know. I know people who have seen Pete Price through a particular lens. So you will host our parties for us, our celebrations, our awards dinners. you do some fantastic presentations for many charitable uh, dues across our city as well. Uh, and you are the larger in life character. Uh, but of course, as I've got to know you better, I also understand and appreciate you have strong opinions about things and you built a, a radio uh, program on the back of many of those opinions and you were not shy in being able to start as a catalyst to an argument, a debate, a discussion. It served you and it served our city well over the years. It would just be good to get your take on where we are at the moment. What your thoughts are about the lockdown, uh, the current uh, controversy of course is about uh, Boris Johnson's advisor Dominic Cummins. Uh, But the overall view you have uh, of politics in this country at the moment, um, whether you think it's positive, negative or otherwise.
1: I'm not a a, a political animal. I do vote. I'm not going to say who I vote for. Everyone thinks I'm a Tory. I'm not a Tory at all. They say it on Twitter all the time. I'm not a Tory at all. I'll say it again. I'm not a Tory at all. But what I will say is politics should be put aside right now and the pandemic is out of the way and people stop dying and then we'll have a go because we're now getting scientists blaming scientists we're now getting politicians blaming politicians this is a complete and unknown uh, quantity around the world and some countries have got it right probably because they had a bit of luck and everybody's now playing the blame game. And I'm sorry, we've just got to get it stopped first. We have got to get this country back working because if we don't get this country back working, we ain't got a country and more people will die from mental health issues, from suicides, more will die without any shadow of a doubt than the virus. More will definitely die. And I'm sick to death of people not realizing that whatever happens, and as for that man who is having this terrible problem, Whatever his problem is, if he's helping to get the country right, let him get on with it and then sack him or then get rid of him when we've got it all sorted. We need all of us to pull together. It is very, very, very worrying. This country. I walked through town the other day, and I wondered how many businesses are going to open, and it broke my heart. And there's guys struggling. The catering industry, restaurant, the the industry of hotels. They were struggling before, especially restaurants and bars before this issue. And that's what worried me. And the people that watch this interview now are the business people. I had somebody the other day say to me, well, I'll tell you how we paid for this problem. We should get these rich cats who got the businesses. I went, excuse me, those rich cats are hemorrhaging money trying to keep their companies going for a job for people like you. While you're on furlough, they're worried sick about how they're keeping the companies open. I get so cross about it, Frank
0: yeah i do think i mean i i think the chancellor's done a great job in terms of supporting businesses and putting in place uh financial packages that have protected a lot of people um there's people that you and i know peter who haven't been protected haven't been supported yeah. uh, and that's sad um but equally i think there is an understanding even amongst that community that it's difficult to support and help everyone where i do think um Rishi Soon, I've got it wrong, and I said it at the time. This isn't hindsight. Is that I think that for all sorts of reasons, he should have allowed businesses to part time furlough people. And I understand and appreciate yeah. that some people may have tried to abuse that, but I think it's very difficult these days, as you say, you know, in a world where you've got social media, you've got all sorts of communication platforms that people can use if they feel that they're being taken advantage of. And I I say that for two reasons. I think firstly, for those mental health challenges that you've mentioned, because really, who wants to be sat at home doing nothing? Even if you get eighty percent of your money, who really wants to be sat at home doing nothing? The second point is it's going to take businesses who have had to furlough a lot of the staff, a long time now to get the staff back in, the team's working again, teams up and running, just having that mental attitude of, right, we're going to work, we can hit the ground running. going to take weeks, if not months, to get people into the right psyche. So I think I've seen a couple of comments uh, that you've made about furlough, and I think you'd have some sympathy with that approach.
1: I have some sympathy, but I will say, and what what started me saying it on uh, social media was, I know three companies fact. Three companies, that's only three companies in a big, big country, uh, where they're struggling to get their staff back off furlough. Yes, they've got to come back, but they went, couple of weeks now a bit more you know I've got some time with the kids you know I mean why come back for 20% now that's generalizing I am not before anyone has to go generalizing but I'm telling you I know three companies that have got that problem right now and that bothers me and I think there are an awful lot of people out there yes they're struggling but they're also enjoying their life saying well what are we working for when you're working to feed and put food on the table so that is once again generalizing but i don't think it's going to be easy and i think an awful lot of people are going to come back off furlough to no job at all i think there's going to be a mass sacking and i think it's going to be one of the worst times in my life even worse the second world war
0: and of course the other thing is we've you know in a city like liverpool gone through bad times in the past and gone through recessions uh i was talking to somebody a couple of days ago, compared this to the crash in the 90s. And I said, I think it's worse. I think it's like the early 80s. And, you you know, again, um, you and I will remember that Liverpool had its docks decimated. We had, uh, again, we go back to campaign and television programmes, Alan Bleasdale's Boys of the Black Stuff. uh, We had a city and a city centre um, that looked as though it had been bombed. I mean, it was in a a really terrible state. We've taken 20 years, almost, to get it to the point where it is now, it's a fabulous, vibrant place. Built on the visitor economy, though, which is a problem for them. But it it would be an absolute disaster, Pete, wouldn't it, if we had to go back to those sort of times.
1: If we went back to those times, I don't know what we'd do. I was on the road as a comic in those times and Frank, I was castigated everywhere I went because I mentioned Liverpool. Every gag, every one of those ridiculous gags. It was a it was a the city was in a bad, bad way. But people like you and Joe and our chief constable and the Echo and the businesses that have opened have turned it round. I think it's one of the most exciting cities in the world. I and I've traveled the world and to see the ships coming in and to walk into city so they, they just walk across the way and they're in the city not like southampton we were on the biggest roll ever and I, it just breaks my heart breaks my heart because i i think joe said i think each ship's worth about a million pounds to us in tourism um so there's that money um, I I I don't know how long it's going to take. I don't know where it's going to go. I think uh, Castle Street being pedestrianised is sensational, and that's going to help and give a hub. I really do think wherever the money comes from, we should try and find some more money and pedestrianise Bow Street. I think that's essential both those two are essential to the uh, the, the, the industry um, of the catering industry and, and, and hospitality. Um, it's going to be a job and a half to get it back. Mm.
0: Well, we can just uh, hope and, and obviously work as hard as we can to contribute to the city's hopefully renaissance and uh, we all look forward to getting back to some sort of normality soon. But listen, before I let you go, and we will have you back to talk about your entertainment career because uh, i enjoy that uh, as much as anybody um you mentioned some very key incidents that have taken place in liverpool um you've been involved in many many stories many campaigns over your period of career as a chat show host in the city what was your i'll, I'll split this into two questions So what was your proudest and what was your most enjoyable? Because they can be two very different things. So what was your proudest story that you got involved in, campaign that you got involved
1: in, Peter? It's it's got to be James Bulger. I never let that go, ever. So, I mean, I could talk about that for another two hours. Um, I just believed that we were being castigated in the city and some people were saying some terrible things in other medias around the world. And I got to know Denise. And to this day, I will never know where her strength comes from. To this day, I will never know. And great news, she's going to be a grandmother which sure, is yes. really really exciting so that was a very important thing um i was thrilled to be involved with the capital culture oh i mean i'm i'm getting upset now with that gee that 2008 was one of the most amazing years of our lives yeah. it was incredible and then to be with Silla who came out of retirement to, to work at the Empire um, in Panto. And, and people came from all over the world, Australia, America, Hollywood, every, everywhere, everywhere in the world to see her. And in fact, we had that wonderful story when she was on stage and she said, how shall I kill him? And only in Liverpool, somebody went, sing to him. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's difficult. It, it was, It was exciting. And, and here's a terrible thing, but was ex- exciting as a broadcaster. We broke the story, sadly, of Michael Jackson dying. Mm. And I was with Jay Hyde at the time, who's got the guide. And we were on the phone to Sharon Osborne, to Yori Geller, to all these people who did not know. And we had them on our show before Sky or anybody got the story. And it was like it, it's an adrenaline rush, which is terrible because somebody's died and a legend as well. But to have radio like that and the press are ringing us to say, Where did you get that from? Where did you, can you give it? And we were doing a show as well. That was a bonus in radio. If people can understand that, it was a horrible story because we lost that a legend, but when it's happening live on air and there's just you and Jay, there's just the two of us together, wow, it's just, you know. Um, I think two nice things that happened, where one, Paul McCartney rang me when I was on uh, Radio Merseyside and my producer went, eh, Paul McCartney's on the phone, and I went, yeah, yeah, and I went, "Hi, Paul, yeah, and he went, hi, Pete, and Paul lost it <laughs> completely, and the other was when Peter Kay rang. Um, and he used to listen to my show all the time, and in fact used a couple of my calls on his DVDs. There's a million stories, Frank, and one of the nicest things was meeting you through Radio City.
0: (laughs) It's very kind of you to say it. Uh, I think I've I've, I've enjoyed uh, many, many hours in your company, and I'm sure I'll enjoy many more when we get to the other side of this thing. It's been great to have you, Peter.
1: Thank you, Frank. And be safe to everybody out there. And it's It's been a joy to be interviewed by somebody who knows what they're talking about. Was it Alastair Campbell you interviewed? <laughs> so I'm very flattered, very flattered.
0: <laughs> You're a top man, mate. Great to see you. Stay safe. <laughs>